0: Hey folks, I am super excited to tell you a bit about today's new sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, MMC hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Ribot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Mel Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once in a lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available. Spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com summitcamp.comslash moods to learn more. Osiris. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media and made possible thanks to our Patreon community. To support the podcast directly, go to patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Skolnick. I'm probably best known as a professional guitarist, I'm also a writer, a photographer, and someone who occasionally gets told to keep his opinions to himself on Twitter. This podcast will involve music and guitar, but it may take us to some unexpected places as well. So, thank you for joining me, and let's do this. episode 25. This is Alex, and we're getting a bit jazzy today. Now, in a way, this feels like bringing it all home, because part of the original motivation for doing this podcast was jazz guitar. I never wanted it to be an exclusive jazz guitar podcast, but it was going to be largely guided by that. The idea being it was easy enough to do, I know so many fine jazz guitar players, many of them friends of mine, in the New York Tri-State area. We get together, two folks in a room, we trade ideas, play some duets, talk music, and in the process, satisfy the side of me that is a jazz guitar nerd. Of course, it became quite difficult to have two folks in the same room. Who saw that coming? So partly out of necessity, but also partly out of inspiration and opportunity, this podcast was able to go all kinds of places. On the last episode, we had a rapper, Divinity Rocks, of course, also a great bassist and Beyonce associate. And the focus was not much on guitar, but I promised for you guitar players, there was some serious guitar stuff coming up. I was not kidding. Today's episode is a perfect example. Now, before I tell you about the episode, I just want to add that this is the last one I am taping in 2021. By the time you hear this, it may be 2022. Either way, Happy New Year and hope everyone had a nice holiday season. Or as nice as possible, given the fact that the only circling of the globe in December was done not by Santa in his sleigh, but a new strain of the coronavirus known as the Omicron variant. So it feels fitting that we're ending the year on episode 25, which is a bit of a mile marker, as well as doing an episode that's focused on jazz guitar, which feels like getting back to our roots. Now, the original plan for this episode was for it to be a joint conversation, me talking to two guitar players, Joe DiOrio and David Becker. Now, unfortunately, during the time we had planned to connect, Joe DiOrio was dealing with some health issues. I hear he's doing better and is on the mend, but we wish him well. In the meantime, David Becker and I did manage to connect, and we spoke largely about Joe Diorio, but we also spoke about David's own music and career, which we trace back to when he was a pupil of Joe Diorio. They are different generations. David was born in the early 60s, Joe in the mid-30s. And by the way, the music that kicked us off is from an album they did together called The Color of Sound, the opening track Blues for Brother Brew. Now, before we start the conversation, let me give you a little bit of background on both of these guys with some facts I think you'll find interesting, starting with Joe Diorio. That is Joe in 1964 with Sonny Stitt and Benny Green. That's from a classic recording called My Main Man, led by the two horn players, saxophonist Sonny Stitt and trombonist Benny Green, not to be confused with the pianist Benny Green, who is closer in age to David Becker and still here. This Benny Green, who left us in the 1970s and was born in the 20s, as well as Sonny Stitt, are both essential names in the world of jazz. Jazz aficionados know their names. Jazz musicians certainly know their names. The general public, less so. And that's definitely true for Joe DiOrio. He's not a household name, but he is a household name among guitarists, including some who are themselves household names. And no doubt he's a guitarist. guitarist. Here's one more clip of his work with Sonny Stett and Benny Green. remember, this is 1964. Not many people played like this. Okay, sure, we had the emerging Mr. Benson, Mr. Martino, and a few others, but I'd argue if they were a basketball team, Joe DiOrio would be accepted into the league. Now, Joe did some other recordings in the 60s and beyond, including some with noteworthy artists like Horace Silver and Stan Getz, to name just a couple. But from the 70s onwards, there's a reason why his name is lesser known to listeners and more known to musicians themselves. A big part of his focus became guitar education. This largely had to do with the fact that a jazz guitar colleague of his, Howard Roberts, started a school in Southern California specifically for the advancement of guitar education it was called Guitar Institute of Technology, or GIT for short. And the school is still going. Today it is called Musicians Institute. And it's still a great school. It's not exclusively guitar and bass focused anymore. I've had the honor to give master classes there and serve on a board for their scholarship programs. But there is something almost mythological about the early period when it was known as Guitar Institute of Technology. It's reminiscent of the first season of SNL, with Joe DiOrio being like a guitar teacher equivalent of a Bill Murray or John Belushi. Some great folks have come along since, but it's never been quite the same. So Joe's influence as a guitar educator extends far beyond those fortunate enough to study with him at the original Guitar Institute of Technology in Los Angeles during the 70s and early 80s, a group that includes David Becker, as we'll hear about. The reason I'm aware of Joe DiOrio is because of a book he published called Intervalic Designs. It was one of several Bibles for very serious guitar players. And if you're studying guitar and you're not aware of these books, you might want to write them down. They included Chord Chemistry by Ted Green, The Advancing Guitarist by Mick Goodrick, and Intervalic Designs by Joe DiOrio. There were several others, but these three were essential. They were like a holy trinity, all authored by distinguished jazz guitar educators, although useful for guitarists of any style. So one of the reasons Intervalic Designs was such a revelation was that it addressed one of the paradoxes of learning guitar, which is that in order to memorize scales, we need to run them up and down interminably to the point where we get in this habit of constantly playing notes that are next to each other. For example, if you are asked to play a five-note pattern on your instrument, for many of us, the first thing that comes to mind might be something like this. This is the first five notes of the C major scale. Right? Notes that are next to each other. But if you mix them up by interval and play notes that aren't next to each other, you could end up with something more like this. So when you're no longer limited to notes that are next to each other, it really opens up a lot of ideas in terms of improvisation as well as composition. And Joe DiOrio took this concept into the stratosphere with intervallic designs. There was also an audio companion with Joe demonstrating written examples from the book. Here are a couple of those. Intervallic designs by yours truly, Joe DiOrio. Design number one. And they get more complicated as they go along. I'm gonna to skip to number five. Number five. Does that sound like a song you may have heard before? He played this. What if you play that up here? <laughs> And if you don't know what I'm referring to, it'll make sense soon enough. Listen for that in the second half of this episode. Here is one final example from Joe DiOrio's book, Intervallic Designs. Whoa, I need to learn that. So I admit that some of the most advanced ideas in intervallic design, such as what we just heard, were a bit over my head at the time. However, there were some more introductory ideas that I was able to understand, one of which I actually took and put into a song by Testament called Seven Days in May. Have no qualms admitting that the first part of that solo was straight out of Joe Diorio's book Intervallic Designs. On a side note, I also wrote the lyrics for that song, ones that have gotten me banned from the People's Republic of China. That's a story for another day. <laughs> ¶¶ This is David Becker, who we'll be bringing in in a moment, former Joe Diorio pupil and later collaborator. David has also been very active in guitar education, which is how I know him. We first met at the National Guitar Summer Workshop, and that was usually based in the U.S., but there was one year they did it in Europe, and David was based in Europe for quite a while. He's since moved back to the U.S., and he's always been very supportive, you know, this crazy idea. A guy best known for a metal band, me, just loving jazz guitar and wanting to be more serious. And he was always there. We've always jammed. We've met up at the uh, NAMM shows every year and always kept in touch. And it's great to be talking to him. Before we bring him in too, I just want to play a little bit. Of his more contemporary jazz-sounding material, which he's had quite a bit of success with. He was on MCA Records with the David Becker Tribune that has his brother Bruce on drums. Here's a quick sample. Now, here is an interesting fact. So this album called Siberian Express was produced with Ken Kalei, well-known for his work with Fleetwood Mac, Ken Collet has a daughter named Colby Collet. Maybe you've heard of her. And he brought in David to play on some of her music. Maybe you've heard this track. That shimmering electric guitar. Okay, it's not the feature of the track, but it's there and heard by a lot of people, and that is David. So without further ado, talking about his own music and especially Joe DiOrio, here is my conversation with David Becker.
1: I met Joe DiOrio 42 years ago as a student at GIT. I was the youngest guy. Back then, you know, GIT was quite small. There was probably two groups that were, you start either in March or in September. so in my group i started in march of 1980 and i would have just turned 18. wow i just got out of high school and most of the guys going to school there were in their Mm mid-20s like i would say the average age was like 23 because they had gone to berkeley or north texas or miami because those were the schools that you would go to if you wanted to study jazz guitar but like git was kind of like the cherry on top of the, the sundae it was like that was the place to go if you wanted to complete your studies because of the wide vast array of instructors that they had and the fact that everybody was really approachable you know if you went to berkeley in fact i actually applied to berkeley when i was in 11th grade because my junior high school music teacher wrote a nice recommendation letter and i'd played trumpet before so now he said you know it'd be great for guitar and i got accepted but i met a guy he's like man don't go to Berkeley. There's like 900 guitar players and you'll never get a chance to study with the guy you want to study with.
0: That's why I didn't go. Yeah. Go to GIT. And so yeah, I went so to like the that. new school. Yeah. I, also, I wanted to leave the West Coast. Right. I avoided Berkeley for that reason. It's, they say there's like guitar players on every block, or the and, most square foot of guitar players like in any, any part of the world.
1: It's a great school. No disintended to Berkeley, and I know lots of guys who teach there. I met lots of guys who went there, and of course, they have a great history. But at the time, this would have been nineteen seventy nine, when I graduated high school. Another guy that my brother Bruce had started playing with also went to GIT. He said, "Don't no, go to GIT because it was such a new thing." You know, Howard wow. Rocks had basically started it with Pat Hicks in seventy six. So wow. when I went to school. There was probably 120 guitar players just in my group. So maybe there was, I think, a total of, in the whole school, maybe 200 guitar players. And that was spread out over like eight groups. Wow. So you were in a group of like 30 guys that would go to these different classes and different stuff. And you had bass players. There was like 80 bass players. But that was it. There were no drummers. We had one, actually, two house drummers. We had a jazz drummer, Joe Broncato, who used to play with Jimmy Smith.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: a guy, Eddie Rossetti, who I think he's still around. He, he did studio work and kind of more of a funk guy. And that was it. You know, so we would just go to school. And I met Joe in the hallways. You know, you got to remember, I was, when I was 18, I looked like I was 12. So, uh, <laughs> the hallway, Joe Diorio's was sitting at this little table, which was kind of, the bookstore and stand for getting like, you know, juice and stuff like that. There was a girl who who ran that stand and he looks at he goes, pulls his glasses and goes, how old are you? Mm-hmm. And I said, how old do I look? And uh-huh. so on our record, there's two improvised pieces. I think I sent you one of them. One of them was called, how old are you? And the other was called, how old do I look? Oh, okay. And I said, I just turned 18. He goes, yeah, I guess that's about right. You know, uh-huh. it was getting younger and younger. But so that was the first meeting. But, he gave a seminar to the group that I was in and talked about Wes Montgomery and right. said, you know, for whatever reason, he was fortunate enough to know Wes. They mm-hmm. were good friends. Wes was a huge fan of Joe's. In fact, there's I a did not there.
0: know. I didn't know those Look guys knew
1: I'll send you a link. There's an interview okay. with Wes Montgomery from a 1965 jazz television show. Mm-hmm. And the announcer's like, have you heard any up-and-coming guitar players that you think mm-hmm. are the next guy? And he's like, yeah. Joe Diario from Chicago, mm-hmm. you heard of him?
2: Hmm.
1: You know, no one would have seen that except for the people that were watching it on that night, but now through the graces of YouTube, it's there forever. Do
3: you listen to players wherever you go? Every chance I get, um, but uh, we've been working so much it's hard to get out to hear other groups. And other I, I hear some uh, guitar players uh, now and then, uh, upcoming guitar players, and uh sound good. Where, where have you heard somebody? Who uh, uh, Does someone come to your mind now that you've, that you've heard uh, an unknown guitarist that's playing someplace uh, yeah. yeah, Joe Diaro from uh,
0: Chicago. Uh, have you heard of him? No. <clears throat> He's together.
1: So they were good friends, and, and Wes, in fact, I have a couple of the Wes stories I'll tell later. And they're both good. Midwest
0: guys. Yeah, they, they met. Kind of in the same age group. So I think it sort of makes sense, right? Wes was Indiana. Was
1: younger. Wes was a little bit older than Joe. Joe was born in thirty six, and I think West was born in what twenty six, or it looked like ten years difference. But yeah. he went and
0: into Indianapolis and Chicago. I guess it's right. eighteen sort of.
1: And any time yeah. West would come to Chicago, he would call Joe. In fact, one time Joe told me that West had some Playboy Jazz Award that he was going to get given, and he called him up and said, "You know, I want to stay at your place. I don't want to stay at that hotel." Mm-hmm. So they would hang all night, play guitar. So, in any case, he was talking about West, and he said, "You know." I asked Wes once, I said, what are you thinking about, Wes, when you're playing? And Wes didn't think about, you know, scales and chords. He thought Mm -hmm. sounds because he had huge ears. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of played like that. I played trumpet. I learned to read music. And, you know, I learned some about improvisation through trumpet playing, but not to the point where I could improvise like I got on guitar. But I just had a natural sense to play. I didn't think about scales. And when these guys were talking about, you know, chord scales and all this stuff, I was lost. And Joe said, no, man, I was thinking of So I just raised my hand. I said, you know, that's how I play. Mm-hmm. And he said, you come and see me man. You know, you come. Because he knew that if I had gone to somebody else who told me to play, you know, Dorian scales up and down the neck, that I probably would have quit guitar.
0: Right, right. I was like that, too.
1: I sat with him and he said, play for me. And I just kind of diddled around, you know. And he said, just keep doing what you're doing, kid. And the thing was is we never had lessons. I never went into his room to say, well, this is the lesson. He showed me, so like the first chord, he showed me this. He went, Here's a chord for Stella by Starlight. And I took that and then he gave me this. And then he gave me another chord. I just I, okay, I played it. And I didn't think about what it was, but I understood that when you had a chord like that, you had to outline the notes to get the sound that you want to get. And so that's how our relationship started. And I would go in every chance I got just to hang. Because there were other guys in this room. He'd be playing, I'd be playing, I'd be watching, but he never wrote things out for me. He just knew that by osmosis, I would pick it up. So as the year progressed and I graduated, I always thought to myself, man, I would like to record with Joe someday, you know, make a record. I had made like this little note, I need to record with Joe. And I would go back, you know, after I graduated, I spent a lot of time at GIT because the door was open. If you were a student, you could go anytime and hang. And I hung with Pat Martino when I was a student as well, because he was there. But
0: wow! It, and just a quick interjection to mention: Pat Martino sadly left us November 2021. One of the all-time greats, and will be the subject of a future tribute episode.
1: I would always go back to play with Joe every time I would go out. You know, I'd do a record, do a tour. I would go yeah. back and play, and you know, he could hear me developing and getting better. And when I put the trio together in the very, very beginning. I had little tapes and he's like, man, that's a cooking trio and your brother sounds great. And so we just stayed in touch that way. But when I got a deal with MCA, the second album, Siberian Express, I had made plans. I said, I want to record a song with Joe. Mm-hmm. But you know how those things go, man. The studio time goes longer. The budget gets shorter. And always. Yeah, I had to cut something. And I'm like, I felt so bad. I called Joe. I said, man, I'm really sorry, but I have to cut our session." And Joe said, like, man, don't worry about it, David. He said,
0: you know, around the block.
1: Yeah. He goes, you got to do what you got to do. man." Yeah. And he said, if it's meant to be, it'll happen. So years later, when I was living in Europe, I uh, was doing a little bit of consulting for USC, for the Studio Jazz Guitar Department, where mm-hmm. I would go and find students that could go and do a year study, kind of like what GIT used to be. Mm-hmm instead of having to go four years for a full degree, it was called the advanced studies program. And all you had to do was take like six units. Hmm. So the cost was like very minimal for those guys. Mm -hmm. And they had guys from Italy and Germany and all these different places. So I was doing some workshops with Richard Smith. And then the idea came, I said we should get Joe and get him over to Europe because he hasn't been there in a million years and people would love to see him. So I put together basically with USC, a tour in 1999 where Joe and I, did, I think it was two weeks, we did two or three days in London and then we did about seven or eight cities in Germany and we did Switzerland. And I hadn't seen Joe in probably oh, a few years. I would visit him every time I came back from Europe, but we hadn't seen each other in a while. So, put this tour together, it was supported by USC. Mm-hmm. We played, in fact, I have some video footage that I just found from that tour of us in London. Mm-hmm. And I've got a nice little things for youtube of a oh, workshop cool. we did and a concert that we did the concert unfortunately the audio is not great so i may have to make just little snips of it but the workshop is cool because at the very end of the workshop i'm playing my drum thing with my card and the guitar and joe's doing this drone thing uh-huh. and it's very cool
3: yeah well the time we we did that little tour together was very interesting you know and uh we played some really good gigs some of the gigs turned out better than others but uh, it was it was nice that's all i can say about it it was a nice tour we both played well and we met a lot of great people and i finally got to england on that tour which i never had been so
0: and that is a quick voicemail snippet of joe for this podcast from david thank you joe and we will have a few more of those and the videos david was referring to are not up yet but we'll keep an eye out for those here again is david and i this time we're talking more about Musicians Institute, back when it was known as GIT, so it was GIT back then.
1: Yeah, GIT it became
0: Musicians then. Institute.
1: It became Musicians Institute shortly after I left, but they didn't have drummers, and it was a small school, and you just had access to everybody. So it was I,
0: just a guitar school, guitar and bass. Yeah, I mean that's I think is when it was really prestigious. Not that it's not no, no, no,
1: no, absolutely because guys in my class, you know, Steve Lynch. He was a class before me. He graduated just as I started. In fact, when I posted a picture of Joe and I from when I visited him a couple of years ago, Steve wrote, oh man, I played in that song that he recorded,
0: Turn Up the Radio, that hit they had autographs. That was their big hit, yeah. He played a Joe Diorio line out of Intervallic Designs that he took out of that book. That's amazing because I played a line from Intervallic Designs on a Testament song.
1: Yeah, well, there you go. So you yeah. see how that stuff translates. This that's from Blues for Brother Brew that I used. That so a lot of that stuff translated over time. You know, that's the thing. You take something from somebody, you make it your own.
0: And I that's we revisit know. that book because it's been a long. Time, but at one time, intervalic designs, chord chemistry by Ted Green, the advancing guitarist, like Mick Goodrick, yeah. and maybe a yeah. couple others. But to me, those were like the, the big ones.
1: I had a paper copy of the advancing Guitarist before it was released. Somebody gave me that years. Oh ago. wow! So that was I, somewhere I still
0: have it. That's so, an incredible. Yes. Piece yeah. of work. It's a, you know, a little and bit overwhelming, but
1: talking yeah. about hanging with Joe in the early days, you know when I was. After I had been a student, but I hadn't quite made my career go yet, I was hanging at GIT and there was Mick Goodrick hanging wow. with Joe. Right, yeah, he played and we hung and, and it was funny because I was going running around with tapes to Germany because I met some guys from record labels there and one of the guys I met was Hans Wendel from ECM Records and he mm. was very encouraging to me and I remember talking to Mick about Hans. I'm like, hey man, you know Hans Wendel? He's like, oh yeah, man, how do you know him? I'm like, well, because I met him in Munich. But it was a great environment, but the tour we did in '99 was sort of the precursor to the album. In that we did all these dates and mm-hmm. did workshops and we did concerts, and it was the first time that Joe Diorio ever played in London. He'd never been in. The
0: That's UK. incredible. He's probably influenced so many players. I know. know who have and played and London and all over the world?
1: It was a hard tour, man. We did. You know, I remember flying from London to Dusseldorf to catch a train five hours to Freiburg, to the place that you and I met at the Jazz and Rock Schule.
0: That's where we met. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was literally right before I moved to New York. In fact, I think I did that workshop, and I think that was my flight to New York because you had to go through JFK anyway. And I just said, all right, I'm going to put my stuff in storage. I'm not going to take the flight back. To san francisco <laughs>
1: so we did that and our, our funny story is we did a thing in zurich switzerland at a school and i remember when i called the guy to book it and he's like oh man he goes i'd love to have joe di but he said no one will come he said i had michael brecker to mm-hmm. a workshop and six guys showed up six guys from michael brecker and i said listen man yeah. if you guys just take care of the hotel take care of the meal usc will pay all the other expenses the guy's like great Right. So we show up to this mm-hmm. workshop in Zurich. There were 40 guitar players.
0: Uh, now we're talking.
1: From all over Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And the guy was amazed. And they made a bunch of money. It was Good. like yeah. we should have said, no, we want, we want a piece of the action. Right.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, still, that sounds like a win-win for everybody.
1: It was. And so that led me to do a little bit of guest teaching at SC in the early 2000s. And Joe and I would get together sometimes in his room and we play and we talked about doing another tour, which I actually booked for 2001, but then he had to have heart surgery. Oh. And then we kind of put it on the back burner. So at that time, I started recording for a record label in Germany called Acoustic Music Records,
2: mm-hmm.
1: by Peter Finger, and he's also a guitar player. So when I put out the first release, the first DVT release with them would have been 2004, was Where's Henning? Mm-hmm. It would have been a seventh or eighth record. Peter said to me one day, he goes, Is there anybody you want to make a record with? And I said, I'd love to do it with Joe DiOrio. And he goes, I'll pay for it. He goes, I'd love to have a record with you and Joe. So, okay. So That's he, great. I called up Joe. I said, Hey, man, I've got some money to do an album. And so we booked a weekend. I think it was like the last weekend of October. And it was one of those things where you get in the studio. I would written a couple of tunes, first of all, for Joe and mine. One of them was Blues for Brother Brew, the weird blues head, and then one called Waltz for Lavinia, which is a difficult tune. I eventually recorded that later with the DBT, but mm-hmm. I didn't solo on that one with Joe. And then a couple other things, that we improvised a bunch of stuff too, which the improvised stuff came out great. It all did. But I remember we never spoke. We just sat and it was yeah. like having a conversation about this time that we knew each other.
0: I don't know about you all, but I've got some lines to learn from both these guys. For some reason, these types of jazz guitar duets with this type of playing... It tends to have a niche community of musicians and listeners, but we're out here and we're strong. And I hope you're enjoying the conversation, both the melodic and harmonic conversation between Joe DiOrio and David Becker and the verbal conversation between David Becker and myself. And as we are at the approximate half hour point, it is time to take our usual short break before continuing with part two of the show. And I'd once again like to wish everybody a happy post-holiday season and a happy new year and all the best in 22, despite the circumstances, which obviously as we speak, it's the spread of this new thing that sounds like it could be the name of a death metal man or better yet, a monster truck. Bigfoot Gravedigger Omicron. I know it's not exactly a great time for humor, But as a friend of mine once said, without comedy, we have nothing. And speaking of funny stuff, I should mention that I released a single on November 11th and it's a blues tune with the Alex Colnick Trio. And to quote the review from Guitar World, paying homage to the energetic soloing of Jimi Hendrix and Stevie Ray Vaughan, Florida Man Blues offers just the right amount of laid back nonchalant noodling and a thirst quenching quantity of decorative licks, which precede an irresistible gain-tinged fretboard exploration. (laughs) It does sound kind of funny out loud. Some friends have made fun of that sentence. I like it, and it's all in good fun. The video has comedian friends of mine, including Dave Hill, who's amazing as the main Florida man, Dean Del Rey, Brian Pasein, And huge thanks to Adam Dubin for doing the video. Adam did Fight for Your Right to Party by the Beastie Boys, Nothing Else Matters by Metallica, and he has applied that magic to Florida Man Blues, which is available on streaming platforms and available to purchase on Bandcamp. And yes, I sang and wrote the lyrics, and it makes fun of Florida. But in the second half of this program, you will hear Florida discussed in a much more respectful manner. So... Don't hate me. (laughs) In other news, the December tour of Pact with Percy Jones and Company went off without a hitch. It was wonderful. We recorded lots of music in the studio and live. And we were looking forward to January 3rd at the Iridium. Unfortunately, all Iridium shows are canceled until January 10th. As we speak, I am still on the calendar to appear there with Jane Getter Premonition, special guest Vernon Reed on January 12th, and January 19th with Alex Golnick Trio. We will cross our fingers, hope for the best, and see what happens. Now let's get back to part two of our program, my conversations with David Becker, and with us in spirit, Joe DiOrio
1: you got to remember Joe's situation, you know, he started off, his very first record was with, I believe, Eddie Harris, mm-hmm. called The Exodus of Jazz, mm-hmm. was 25 or 26, which was a very, very famous record because they did a version of Exodus, instrumental. And, you know, you can hear Joe, he sounds great. It's not quite as angular as he became, but you can hear that it's him. You know, then he started playing with Sonny Stitt, and then he was in Chicago working that scene and stuff like that. And then he went to Vegas. And I'll tell you this West story that he told me. He said the decision to go to Florida to kind of change his perception of how he was playing, he was doing like a showroom gig in Vegas. And Wes Montgomery was playing the main room at night. Mm-hmm. So Joe did his show gig, and he went to the gig every night to see Wes. And the last night, and he said this is the last time he saw Wes alive, Mm -hmm. shortly before he died. Wes is looking out in the audience, and he goes, hey, Joe, you out there, man? Come up and play. And Joe was like, man, I don't want to get up there and play. I'll embarrass myself. And Mm -hmm. Joe's like, come on, man. So he got up and played a couple tunes, and he went off the stage, and he thought he sucked. Mm -hmm. he goes over to the bar, and some older black guy puts his arm around him. He goes, hey, man. He goes, you don't have to try to sound like Wes Montgomery. You sound like you. You do your thing. Mm -hmm. And he said that was like this epiphany of like, okay. And then when Wes died, he went like, well, what am I going to do that Wes Montgomery didn't do? So he went to Florida and he met Ira Sullivan, who was very important in his development because they had a band with Jaco Pestorius on bass and Steve Bagby on drum. There are tapes that you can find on YouTube of performances that they did. And they never recorded at that time, they just played these gigs at this church or someplace. And everybody knows about it. When I met Mick Goodrick, he knew about this band. He goes, oh man, we heard about you guys. Because of course you gotta remember the Matheny connection,
0: Matheny was there for a year. Well, I was just about to say, this all intersects because we recently had the episode with Pat. Right, right. And he told a very similar story about playing like Wes Montgomery. And he was kind of getting a reputation as the kid who could play right. like Wes Montgomery, it's amazing. Right. And he had a, described some very similar scenarios, which mm-hmm. sounds like you know older, sure. you know, legit musicians saying, hey, man, you can play, but what are you doing?
2: Yeah.
0: You don't need to play like him. And it was this revelation, and it was like, oh, and it really led him to find his own thing. So, yeah, it's amazing that that connection and then well, Florida then, and Nick Goodrick and...
1: Yeah, the Florida connection is also that, you know, during that time when Matheny was a student and then became a student teacher, there was a whole bunch of guys there like, you know, Danny Gottlieb, Steve Morse, Bruce Hornsby, Hiram Bullock, Will Lee, I mean, the list goes on of all
0: these great musicians that... What school was this? This is Miami University. Yeah, I mean, that was just an incubator. <laughs> I'll tell you another story.
1: I had a student just recently, he studied with me for about a year and a half, and that's Chuck Lorre. You know
0: Chuck Lorry, the I know the name, yeah.
1: Half Men, Big Bang Theory.
0: Yeah, of course, yeah.
1: He's a guitar player. Chuck's a very good guitar player, as a matter of fact. And we met at Norm's Rare Guitars, because I was doing a bunch of stuff for Norm's All Guitar Network. And he came in, and he goes, i got to get with you, because he wanted to study some stuff. So we got together pretty frequently, and he was in Miami, back then in fact when the uh, university started a electric guitar program mm-hmm. the guy who ran the program was i think stan samol mm-hmm. and stan had hired joe Diorio to also teach mm. so when stan he met chuck somewhere at a gig in miami he goes man you should come down to the school because i've got all these guitar players and it'd be good for you to come and hang Mm. So Chuck walks into this room And he's actually told this story on his vanity cards That he does on his TV show uh-huh. He's sitting there and this little kid comes in With a big box and starts playing It was Pat Metheny And oh, he goes, Man, I'm doing the wrong thing I need to do something else And at that moment, he had a revelation I need to go on to television
0: Right, so, I need to become an actor yeah. Well, <laughs> we became a writer is what we did
1: And I mean, Chuck wrote some tunes that you know Were recorded by Blondie and stuff like that But he basically became a, a comedy writer Amazing it was Chuck's birthday a couple of years ago. Matheny was coming to town. And I said, "Hey, man, do you want to go meet Pat Matheny? Because I know Pat, and I'll get us in." He's like, "Oh, well, that'd be great." So we go to the concert, and for some reason, Chuck had to leave because he had some emergency at home early, so he didn't get to see Pat. But after the show, I went to Pat and talked to him. He's like, "Oh, man, that's so great that Chuck came out." I said, "Well, would you give him a little message?" And he gave him a little video message and thanked him so much. And you could see that Pat was so elated by Chuck acknowledging mm-hmm. him. And when I sent it to Chuck, Chuck was so elated that Pat acknowledged him.
0: One sense I got from Pat is just the level of genuineness. Oh, um, absolutely. Um, it's so genu- Yeah, everything is just coming from such an honest place. I mean, yeah,
1: he's, a, he's a great guy. I've known him a long time, and I've worked with him now on several projects. And I'll tell you one story is that I saw him in Germany, and he hadn't played with Joe Diorio in quite a while. So I said to him, I said, hey, man, I'm doing some, you know, teaching at SC. Would you come and do something with Joe? He goes, mm-hmm. man, absolutely. But he goes, it has to be a day off. Mm-hmm. I said, all right, I'll check your schedule. So I told all the guys from SC, I said, you know, Pat said he would come. And one guy said, no, man, there's no way he'll come. I called his management. They want $5,000 or something. <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, no, I know Pat. He's a friend of mine. So let me just work on this. So sure enough. A couple months later, I get this email from Pat. He's in Hong Kong. He's like, hey, man, I'm sorry for the delay. He goes, I really want to come and play with Joe if you still want to have me. I said, how much money do you want? He goes, I don't know, because he doesn't deal with the money. He goes, give me whatever you got. And I go, well, you know, there's different levels and stuff. So we worked out. It wasn't a lot of money, but he came and he played. And, man, I picked him up and we went. And when they played, he and Joe, I was sitting on the side. Mm -hmm. Pat turned to me and looked at me and he said, thanks, man. Huh. And when I left with Pat, Joe pulled me aside. He goes, Hey man, I want to thank you. Wow. So it was great to bring them together to see that. Unfortunately, we were hoping to get a record out of that because Pat had talked about it. He goes, Maybe we can get that record done. Mm-hmm. They never did, but there's enough stuff of footage of them playing live at these different workshops that people will get a good sense of how they played.
0: That's an incredible story.
1: It's great, and I, you know, and then when I did the Attila Zoller project, which was a tribute record that I got guys like Matheny and Jim Hall and Ron Carter and all these guys, Mike Stern. I had hoped to get Joe, but Joe at that point wasn't playing guitar anymore, so I, uh, I, I really couldn't nice. include him, which was a drag. But you know, the thing saw is,
0: him recently, right?
1: I went to Connecticut. I didn't get to see him because he was having some issues, but we talked on the phone and we okay. talked a lot, actually. He's doing well. I mean, he gets dialysis three times a week and that's a lot on him. He does a little bit of teaching for some guys, but not really much anymore. But he works on music every day. I called him once. I was here playing in my studio. And I said, man, I'm working on this thing. And she was like, oh, man, we were on the phone for two hours. I was playing stuff back and forth. And the Miami thing, I want to just kind of close it up a little bit. The Irish and stuff was so important because they played some really, really incredible stuff. I mean... And they never toured because Ira just wanted to hang in Florida. He Mm -hmm. didn't want to go on the road. He'd been on the road with Charlie Parker. He'd done all that. He was like, I just want to hang in Florida and prune my trees, Mm -hmm. make music on the weekends. And that's what they did. So it never got outside of that. But all the people who knew, even Chuck Lorre said he saw that band, how great they were and Mm -hmm. how amazing that music is. And it's funny, now with the internet, things go out in a millisecond. But back then, the musicians would bring it to the other parts of the world and talk about it or bring tapes and stuff like that so
0: it's amazing Oh uh, it's very great thanks for sharing that you're so right about the internet bringing light to all these things you know for all the uh terrible things about the internet you have disinformation ignorant comment sections whatever <laughs> there's some great stuff and that that is one of the shining lights after talking to pat i found this clip on the internet and it's this show or a series of shows in europe yeah and it's i guess it's in Finland. and pat but yeah, pat's really he's like not pat yet. yeah yeah no no learning and it's incredible you can see your seeds of what he's going to become
1: nick you know was the guitar player that played with gary burton's quartet right and that's he's the band leader on that yeah. exactly. And I asked Pat about Mick. I said, so what was your connection with Mick? I mean, obviously, he learned a lot from those guys. But he said, as far as Mick was concerned, Gary picked him because he was the best guitar player in Boston at the time. He did the gig for a while, and then they got Pat and had two guitar players. And at some point, he just said, I had enough. I don't want to go on the road anymore. I want to hang in Boston. And that's what he did. But to go back to Joe DiOrio's influence on Pat, when he was a student at Miami and then a student teacher, he spent a lot of time with Joe. Mm-hmm. In fact, he even said that Brightside's life, he should give Jody Oreo a royalty
0: for that. That's <laughs> a Jody Oreo. Oh, and, I could see that. Yeah, yeah the intervalic thing. Mm-hmm. For sure. Number five.
1: A lot of the stuff that he wrote for Brightside's life was stuff based on intervals,
2: which Mm. he called Joe
1: Diorio, So fifths, the fourths, all that stuff, you know? And so, and, you know, Joe knows, Joe's very humble, but if you talk about people that were influential on Pat Metheny, there's two guitar players or three that I would mention. First of all, his love for Wes Montgomery, but guys that he knew, Attila Zoller, because Attila met him when he was a kid at a Mm -hmm. jazz camp and kind of weaned him a little bit. And then Joe Diorio and Mick Goodrick those guys had a direct influence on Pat Matheny's development in a big way. Yeah. And it's funny because Joe told me that when Pat went up to Berkeley, he came down to Miami a few times to play. And the first time he came, he said he hadn't really become the Pat Matheny we know. Yeah. And he goes, you know, Pat's still trying to find his voice. And then like a couple years later, he came back down. He goes, now
0: he's got uh, it. There it is. Yeah.
1: I remember when I was a student at GIT. I liked Pat Matheny because I'd, I'd seen the Pat Matheny group when I was 17 at the Roxy with Mark Egan and Danny Gottlieb. And I was like, wow. And then, of course, I liked Wes Montgomery because I knew he was such an important guy. And I liked Joe DiOrio. So those were three guys that I sort of like looked at. I said, well, Pat was the younger guy. There was Joe, the guy living, who knew Wes, who knew Pat. And then there was Wes Montgomery. So I kind of focused on listening to those guys for a while in sort of that order. Yeah, A lot of guys didn't get Pat Matheny back then. Maybe like, oh man, I don't, you know, just, can he play? It's like, well, of course he can play.
0: Because <laughs> sure he was so different at the yeah, time. Yeah. He had his own it's thing. It's great to, people do. to do.
1: Knew a little bit about what he did, and I knew because I had heard him play with Joe.
0: and that is pat and joe together there are a few clips online that you can find of them playing as a duo unfortunately most don't have very good sound quality and as alluded to earlier they never got to make a proper recording, but you can find a few clips and they're worth watching. That one is live at Musicians Institute. No longer GIT, it had already become Musicians Institute, but it looks like it was from quite a while ago. And let's hear another clip of Joe. This one earlier, this is in 1973 in Miami with the Ira Sullivan group as referred to earlier in conversation with the bassist, the one and only, Jocko Pistorius. Coincidentally, Pat's bandmate on Bright Size Life, which would be recorded a few years later. Yes.
3: Would you like to uh, continue now with a very beautiful thing written by our guitarist, Mr. Joe DiOrio, Paula Sunshine and Manima Rainbow, dance with the ball Yes. Alex. Uh,
0: So that recording's online, there's no video, there's just a very basic photo, and it's a very basic recording. You can hear the murmurs of the crowd. It's kind of cool in a way. It feels like you're there, and the murmurs aren't that different. It's like playing a club today. Now, there are some parts where it does sound like the band is still working things out. Things aren't quite together. There are also some really cool moments. No doubt if this band had stuck it out and recorded in the studio, they would have prepared and really been on fire. Thank goodness somebody at least recorded this on what sounds like a cassette recorder. And interestingly, that same year, 1973, Joe DiOrio would record his very first record under his own name. Unfortunately, he wasn't very happy with the quality of the recording. But still, it's a great record. Here's David Becker again.
1: I mean, his very first record which is called Solo Guitar, mm-hmm. was done in 1973, I think, on a record label called Spitball Records. And mm-hmm. I remember talking to John Abercrombie about it. He goes, man, I heard that record. And he goes, I wanted to quit playing guitar. Because it's amazing what Joe did with the sonics of it, that mm-hmm. he never got a good guitar sound in the studio. And that's one of the things that I made sure that when we recorded, that we got the best sounds we could. And I think Joe's guitar sounds great on the color of sound. But just for the playing that he did on that, that album, solo guitar, it's amazing, man. It's just, this stuff is just unbelievable. Joe Diario, for me, he pushed the envelope of the jazz guitar or the guitar into the 21st century far before anybody else. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you go back and listen to what he did, I mean, I've got tapes of stuff that he did. It's unbelievable. But the problem is like Joe never followed one path. He just kind of did his thing. And he was he said, you know, man, I did not care. And I think the thing is, is, Joe had a greater influence on the guitar players and musicians around the world just through his doing what he did. Kind of working on himself and not worrying about being a star. But you know, you mention his name to everybody, and those that know, they're like, man, they have great respect for Joe.
0: And to close out this episode, speaking on the phone to David about their album, which he was talking about and which kicked off our episode, The Color of Sound, let's give the last word to Joe DiOrio.
3: Well, I've known David a hundred years, and he finally asked me to do a record with him. And David is... uh... A rising star, or maybe he is a star already. I think I played good on it. I was listening to it a lot, and I think there's some very creative moments. The record we did is is an an exceptional fucking record, man. Believe me, I'm telling you, it's a good record. Uh, Well, anybody who plays guitar should be listening to it. And I recommend it highly to guitar enthusiasts. Don't give a shit what level they're on, they should be listening. It's as simple as that.
0: And I think it's safe to say we will be listening. I'll be listening. Thank you, Joe DiOrio. And, of course, thank you, David Becker. This was a really fun episode for me to do. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned some things. And if you're not a fellow jazz guitar nerd like myself, well, maybe this episode could be a step in that direction. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media, hosted and produced by yours truly, Alex Skolnick. Production for Osiris by Kirsten Kluthy and Brad Stratton. Final edits and mixes by Justin Thomas of Revoice Media. Music by yours truly, except where you hear live bass and drums, such as right now. That's Matt Zabrowski on the drums, Nathan Peck on the bass. Artwork by Mark Dowd. As always, we want to thank members of our Patreon community. Welcome, new Patreon. Thank you so much. You make this possible. To join the Patreon and support the podcast directly, you can go to patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. And you can simply support the podcast by leaving us a review, leaving us a rating, tell your friends, and just being you. Listen. Thank you for listening. And one more thing, don't forget to hit subscribe. We have lots of cool stuff coming in 2022. We do not want you to miss an episode. Have a great 2022. I know things are crazy. We're going to make the best of it. We're going to get through this. Have a great new year. Take care and be safe. Boy, that
3: little interlude is a bitch, man. Osiris.